This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. Their upcoming course is JavaScript Framework Showdown with Brian Holt from Reddit. You can also get recordings of their previous shows like JavaScript The Good Parts, AngularJS, CSS3 In-Depth, and Responsive Web Design. Get it all at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Watch Me Code. Have you been looking for regular, high-quality video screencasts on building JavaScript done by someone who really understands JavaScript? Derek Bailey's videos cover many of the topics we talk about on JavaScript Jabber and are up on the latest tools and tricks you need to write great JavaScript. He also covers language fundamentals, so there's plenty for everybody. Looking over the catalog, I got really excited, and I can't wait to watch them all. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash watchmecode. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 114 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from a late morning. Jameson Dance. Hey friends. Joe Eames. Howdy. Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week we have a special guest, that's Elliot Kember. Hi everybody. You want to introduce yourself? Okay, I'm Elliot Kemba, and I work at Dropbox doing prototyping and development. And uh, yeah, that's me. I just recently moved to San Francisco, where the sun shines. I used to live in England, where the sun didn't shine. San Francisco's nice, isn't it? It's lovely. Did the you just say you live up. where the sun don't shine? <laughs> oh, oh. Oh. I hear the sun never rises on the British Empire. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> All right, well, we brought you along today to talk about... Asynchronous UI and non-blocking interactions. No, no, it's just dot, dot, dot. Wait, what about we're using Swift now, huh? Oh, yes. You guys been using it? I've been using it. Swift Jabber. Been on it for about a year. Yeah, I I was pretty much on the uh, dev team for Swift five years ago when we started with it. Used to be called Go back then, but... um, I'm kind of curious because... I don't think I was the one that set this one up, so I'm not exactly sure what is meant by asynchronous UI. Care to fill us in on that? Well, asynchronous UI and non-blocking interactions are more or less the same thing. It's like if I click something and then I, you know, I want to do something else. I don't want to be waiting for a spinner or be blocked on something. I want to feel like I'm actually using a computer that is here in the room listening to me. So, and especially on the web, there's been a lot of movement recently towards building interaction models that, that allow for this kind of asynchronous interaction where I can do something and, and it'll show that it's loading, but the screen isn't frozen or I'm not waiting for a whole new page t- to load. It's super important and I think it gets forgotten a lot, especially here in Silicon Valley where everybody lives really close to the service. I'm originally from New Zealand. In that particular part of the world, we have a serious problem with latency, especially on uh, you know sites that are hosted in the States. And, you know, you end up really, really getting a good feel for which sites are <clears throat> asynchronous and which are super-duper synchronous. Anything that's synchronous and makes you wait, makes you wait five to ten times as long if you're a long way away. So it's kind of a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and it's, um, it's sort of the new, the new craze on the web, I think. It's the new jam. It's been happening for a while, but recently everybody's sort of started to move towards a few JavaScript frameworks that allow it a bit more easily. It's sort of, the, I think it's a topic on everybody's minds in web development. So there's a bunch of stuff you said that I have questions about. One of them, you mentioned there's a few new JavaScript frameworks that allow it more easily. Can you talk about the tools we have to build asynchronous UIs? Yeah, well, I, I don't know if you guys are using uh, Angular or Ember or Backbone or, 
or whichever. I think there's a couple new ones too since I last looked. I've been off these for a few weeks while I've been getting a few things done in the, in the macOS development world. But uh, recently I've been using Ember.js, which I really like. It's sort of my go-to JavaScript framework. There's also Angular, which is similar but different. Backbone I Never used quite a while ago. Okay. Well, I, I don't actually know what your guys' background is, all of you guys, or, or our listeners. So I, I may be telling you all things that you already know, but... I think there's probably a mix of... I, I would imagine most of the listeners have familiarity with at least one of those. Right. right. Can you maybe talk about how these tools specifically enable asynchronous UIs? Yeah, sure. One of the biggest things about Ember that I like is the fact that it's got a sort of a, a data layer. It's, an, it's called Ember Data, and it sits between your, you know, your front end and your, and your API or your servers or whatever you've got running in the background. And, and it means that when you save a record, instead of making a save all the way out to the server and coming all the way back and waiting on that promise, you can update the record and update all of your UI and just show that it's saving in the background, but the, you know, the data's already there. The data's in the view, and you can sort of see it. And it just gets persisted away to a storage in the background. So rather than waiting for each, you know, atomic save to happen and each record to be saved to the database, you can keep editing and, and edit the next thing before, uh, before that save comes back. It means you get a few complications with things that are in different states and things that have to happen other, after other things, because that's pretty normal. But, uh, yeah, the advantage of it is that if you get it right, it's just a really nice way to build things. It also, I've found it means that you can kind of develop asynchronously as well. If you're not waiting on a certain part to be finished or a certain API to be available, you can kind of fake it or you can, you know, if things are very, very slow in development, you can get around it. But yeah, I, I really like it. But Ember is like a, a kind of a top to bottom JavaScript framework, right? Where it, it handles all your routing, it handles all your models, templates. There's not a lot that you can or really need to change when you're using it because it's sort of been designed from the ground up. I haven't used Angular nearly as much, but it's it's a little bit more componenty. So you can just have a, a little widget or an app that sits inside your normal site, um, and it lets you kind of jump into it without quite so much learning and quite so much magic. Uh, Ember is sort of more Railsy that way. I mean, the capabilities to do asynchronous UIs are. I mean, it, it's kind of a consequence of some of the design decisions in JavaScript, where it's got an event loop, and I mean, you you could do this stuff with plain jQuery spaghetti, but it sounds like you're saying it's easier now with these newer frameworks. Yeah, this, this technology is certainly nothing new. People have been doing asynchronous work on the web for, you know, for an awfully long time, but it's kind of that long tail where, you know, 5% of the developers out there might have been doing this for a long time, but a lot of people either don't have time to or just sort of don't really understand how it works, and it, it takes them a lot longer to catch up and to start doing this stuff. And with these frameworks and with these sort of sets of rules and workflows that people can work alongside, it means that anybody can sort of come to grips with an asynchronous workflow or asynchronous products sort of a lot more quickly. And they don't have to do as much thinking about what technology they're using. They can just sort of you know, follow a template, follow a prescribed sort of way of working. And that, that works out really nicely. I found it to be super duper helpful. And especially just in sort of giving recommendations on, on application structure and things like that, where I don't want really necessarily want to have to think about how my controls are wired to get wired together and things like that, which is why I prefer using these frameworks. It also means you can update the framework codes separately, of course. But, um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of JavaScript programmers out there that, that sort of didn't grow up with a proper programming background or, you know, the fundamentals of application design. And uh, it's really helpful to bring these products out to the front and to kind of get all the parts that don't change between applications to be consistent between, you know, separate projects that you work on. So instead of having to upgrade your JavaScript core stuff between the sites that you work on, you can, you can take a common core of libraries around with you. 
I think it's really nice. I think it's, uh, it's starting to become a bigger thing on the client side now. So it seems to me, though, that you could write an app that posts and every does all this stuff synchronously anyway with some of these frameworks. Mm-hmm. Do they make it hard for you to do that, or are there still things that you have to keep in mind while you're doing it in order to avoid having that issue? Did you say synchronously, or you can do things synchronously? Yeah, do they allow you to do things synchronously? Uh, yeah, they do. They allow you to... I guess what the way I would say is that they allow you to override the asynchronicity with, with synchronous interactions. So you're still performing asynchronous events. You're just blocking the interaction. Uh, if, if you see what I mean, you can, you can block something and make it wait until an asynchronous thing comes back, but it still means that other things can happen in the background or you can switch states in your application. I, I guess asynchronous for the web is <clears throat> a large part of that is whether or not you're actually loading a new page. And if you're not loading a new page and the, and the information is still there and you can click around and you can go to, say, a different tab or go back to the original tab. I mean, I'm so sorry, I'm, I mean like a tab in a page. If your web application has multiple tabs or windows open at the same time inside it, you can be editing one and jump to a different part of the application while that's still saving. And that can be as synchronous as you like and can take a while. And you can even prompt the user when that thing's finished. Like when you send an email in Gmail and they have that, like, um, what is it, Z to undo? It, uh, it, it goes away into the background, and that email is processed synchronously. You can't really do anything with it until it's finished sending. But uh, it kind of disappears, and it gets out of your way, which I really like. And uh, I, think that's, I think that's sort of what I mean. You can still do stuff synchronously, of course, when it makes sense. But to do everything asynchronously in the meantime means you can override that with synchronous events, and you can wait for stuff to come back. I was just going to ask, is there more to asynchronous UIs than just using a framework? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the framework will get you started, but uh, it's important to kind of use the framework and get an idea for what you're being told to do and how you're supposed to work. You can certainly, like, break these frameworks and do horrible, you know, asynchronous stuff and change pages and, and reload and all sorts of stuff, but um, it kind of pushes you in the right direction, I think. You know, it, it gives you the tools to do things correctly, to use, you know, promises and callbacks, and, and uh, everything's there. It just makes it easier to do it that way than to do it the wrong way. So I was going to ask about the performance aspect. Um, you mentioned it as one of the motivations for asynchronous UIs, especially if you're dealing with longer latency from being on the other side of the world from some of the servers you're visiting. How does asynchronous UIs, how do they interact with performance? How do they affect performance? I think they're huge. One of the things you can do with asynchronous stuff is you can preload things you know, that, that you know you're going to need later on. For example, we, we wrote an app called Forge, which is a static hosting environment. And one of the things we did was compile your whole site, all the HTML, into one JavaScript manifest file. And then while you're browsing around the site, instead of pulling each file from the server, you just display it on the page. So the whole downloading all those pages in the background is asynchronous. And it comes down off a CDN, so it's super quick. But, uh, but that data is already there for you because you preloaded that asynchronous interaction. You didn't have to wait for someone to click or anything. You just load them all at once. So because those are asynchronous calls when you do them. And because it, it sort of doesn't doesn't change between requests, you can you can do it in advance sometimes. You can sort of cheat a little bit, get stuff first. And you can't really do that if you you know if you don't know what the content of those things is. So but that's, let me stop here real quick because I'm not sure I understood. So what you're saying is you you have a manifest or a list of the JavaScript files that you're going to need HTML files. <laughs> yeah, this was something we, we kind of pioneered and it worked pretty well actually. It's basically a giant hash, and, and the, the keys for the hash are the URLs for all the pages and then the contents, all the HTML contents. 
And when you click the length, it matches one of those hashes. Instead of actually requesting that HTML away from the server, it pulls down that entire file. Now, there's some caveats to that. If you design your JavaScript in a way that expects something, uh, you know, expects uh, an event to fire or something like that, we, you can get into trouble. But if it's generally, if it's just a static HTML site and there's nothing too clever going on with the JavaScript, it seems to work pretty well. And this is super useful if you're on mobile or you're, uh, you know, you're in New Zealand or you're, in a, you know, on the, the long end of a really, <laughs> really useless dial-up connection. These, these things make a huge amount of difference. So essentially what you're saying is you get all of the HTML up front. Mm -hmm. Does that slow down the initial page load or do you do that after the page is already loaded? Yeah, what's the cost? I mean, you can be talking about a lot of HTML potentially, right? Well, it's gzipped, which helps, and so this it is quite small, uh, and it, it loads after that initial page load, so you never actually see that performance hit. We benchmarked it for most sites as being smaller than any one image on any of the pages of those sites. So, I mean, compared to other content that you're going to be pulling down, it's much smaller once it's gzipped, so it's pretty small. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's tiny. And when you think about it, like, that whole model of requesting the About page and then requesting the Contact page and then requesting the homepage again, is kind of nuts, and it's kind of silly that, that you would want to do that. And I know it's sort of the way that the internet was built when it was designed, which is quite some time ago now, but having all of those tiny little HTML files as separate resources, each one of which needs to be requested from some server that could be a 1,000 miles away or 10,000 miles away, is sort of a broken, a broken model in today's kind of international setup where you still have to worry about the speed of lights, you still have to worry about the unknown connection on the other end. You know, you've got these things that you need to think about. So if you can download everything, it's one kind of slug. It makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, I should say that individual requests are what really hurts with latency, right? If you've got a slow connection, once your download is going, it's, it's actually not too bad once, once it's on the move. It's okay. You don't have that same latency once the stream is coming down to your computer, but every single HTTP request needs a, you know needs that horrible round trip away to to the states or wherever it is. Now I'm actually out of the You know, on my thirty six hundred baud modem, it is pretty slow. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you joke. Where where whereabouts whereabouts are you, Joe? Where are you, uh, where, where are you? Uh, Utah. Probably not too far from most of the servers that you hit, right? Oh no, no, not at all. <laughs> so yeah, people always joke about this, like, oh, you know, we don't need this. We've got ADSL now. We've got DSL. We've got fiber. We got all this stuff. But every, again, every couple of years, I fly back out to New Zealand, or every year, and I, you know, I browse around the net, and I view some sites, and I do all sorts of bits. And what I've noticed every time is that if things are getting fast, things feel faster. I don't know whether things actually are getting faster, and a lot of sites still have that latency, so you still feel it on initial page load. The apps that are doing things asynchronously are just kind of delightful to use. I get away every once in a while into the country and use a pretty rural connection. And it's, it's almost impossible to use sites that are synchronous where every page needs to go back to the server and get all its contents. And it's super frustrating. It's like death by a thousand paper cuts once you, you know, load 10 or 12 different, different pages in one by one. One of the worst connection types is the satellite, right? Because you get the satellite down, which is really high latency because it's bouncing around <laughs> up, up there. And then you get your modem up, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you've got, it's, it's super... Um, I guess that that is an asynchronous connection, isn't it? Or it's, yeah. uh, it's <laughs> yeah. one, is one is one is super way faster than the other, right? And that's, but the, that's the exactly down it. is still highly latent, right? Still really, really latent. And the two aren't connected, so the two aren't synchronized over a single line or anything. Right. They're, they're two separate connections where one is posting and one is getting. Sorry, Chuck. Didn't mean to cut you off. Thanks. 
I was actually wondering, are there circumstances under which this doesn't make sense? Because it seems like if you request, I mean, I guess HTML is just text, and, you know, you may not be pulling a lot of extra data once you have the main layout there, but are there situations where you need to think about this just a little differently or where it doesn't make sense? Sure, if you work for 37 signals. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they go the Turbolinks route, right? They request everything, and they just leave the header intact, which does cut down on a lot of content. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's sort of more applicable. What they're doing is they're generating the content on the server, and they're posting that down as HTML. So if, you're, if your content is changing all the time, obviously you need the updated data rather than the, you know, whatever it was you got at load time. If something changes while you're using it, you want to get, you know, you want to get the latest updates. So if you're rendering data on the server, you actually need to push all that down. But if you're, if you're just rendering the UI on the client side and rendering the data in, then you can build it in that way. Older sites have a lot of problems with this. If you've got an older site written in, you know, Rails before the Turbolinks or something, you've got an older sort of setup and maybe your JavaScript doesn't quite handle this properly, then yeah, you do need to look at it. It's not bulletproof. It doesn't work for everything, but it's an interesting way to go forwards, I think. So, Elliot, are you saying that the people at 37 Signals are crazy or just uneducated? <laughs> I those are my only two options for this answer. I think you've <laughs> yeah. given me a bit of a straw man. I don't, I don't know whether that's right. No, I think, I think they're opinionated and they certainly know better than I do for their specific setup what makes the most sense. There's a lot of factors there, right? In terms of development costs, the people that they have, the team that's building whatever it is, any legacy stuff they've got lying around. So I wouldn't call them crazy to do it, to do things a certain way. Probably not the way I would do things, but I have never built that specific application. I don't, you know, intimately know its needs. So I don't, so, I don't know. I don't know. It sounds so, like though that then you're pulling down like full HTML pages for each one, like the about page and stuff. Or are well, you just pulling down the relevant bits that need to change on wherever they're at? I'm pulling down the whole HTML. The reason being, most of it is uh, is compressed using GZIP. GZIP that first load, right? Anything that is this, I don't have a you know detailed understanding of how GZIP does its actual compression, but from what I can tell, any parts that are the same between two different sections, two different pages, or especially pieces that are used over and over, and it's all just text, and most of those are HTML tags. So HTML tags are pretty um. Symbolif symbolifiable, I don't know. You probably compress HTML pretty well. So the more pages you push down with that, probably the better compression ratio you're going to get. Yeah. Now, and what's more is you don't have to, we never actually got around to doing this, but you don't have to load all the pages at once. You can load in a specific subset of most the most visited pages, and then you can load in some other ones later on if you think you're going to need them. Or, you know, you can you can do it like a spider graph. You can get to one, you know, once they click on a certain page, you can then asynchronously load in a few other pages, sort of preload them in. And we're not talking about a huge amount of data, and all of this can be on a CDN anyway, so it doesn't matter too much. But it's so, like, that's the way it should be. That's kind of the way it should be built. Now, do you do the same kind of thing with, like, JSON data off of API? So you know that uh, you have this service, and they're most likely going to need this data at some point. Do you pre-send that as well? I don't. I don't do that, no. There's sort of no reason why you couldn't, although that might make sense to just pull down on page load on the client side, depending on, you know, depending on how that's going to work. Yeah, I guess, I guess and you can preload that stuff. It depends on your use case. If they're going if they're definitely going to need it, then you do pull it in. If they might need it, then, you know, you do. Otherwise, you, you just figure it out case by case. If not, you know, if, if they can handle the load, then when they click on it, you can pull that data in. The great part about this, this asynchronous system that we built was that it, it, it fell back really well. You request the URL and you get that actual page. 
So the pages still exist, you know, in the wild. And if you reload on one of those pages, you get the original. So it falls back. And the same is true of preloading that data. And if you preload it on page load, then the data is in there. But when they, when they, when they inevitably visit that URL where you're showing that or that page section where you're showing that data, you can make that request again and update what you have, the new information. So, so there's stale data and then an update rather than just like a loading spin. So the update may be transparent. There may be no changes since you pulled it, but, um, I don't know. That's where I like to look at using a, using something like Pusher or, you know, using a WebSocket or streaming that data to them on the fly. Cause rather than make two get requests, you know, you, you just seed them with a certain amount of data and then just fill in everything that's happened since then. Still quite a bit of effort in terms of, you know, actually implementing that. So it comes down to, you know, whether or not you can, <laughs> whether or not you can be bothered setting that all up for whichever site you're doing. So Jameson was talking a little bit about a blog post called The Need for Speed. I've referenced this a few times on this show, I think. It's just a really good presentation about performance, but there's a section on responding optimistically to user interaction. And I thought that fit in really well with some of the performance things you were talking about, where you you immediately render data as soon as it's input. You don't wait for responses from the server. Mm. When you're initially loading the site, you can kind of load a skeleton and then load the rest in the background or things like that. Are these are there other techniques like that for performance with asynchronous UIs? Uh, yeah, I guess I've just clicked that link and I'm having a look at, at this page now. I think I read it a little while ago. It's, it's been around for a while. I think it's a few years old, but yeah, it looks some good. It advice. looks familiar. Yeah, f- for me, I think this is super duper important. Speed is one thing, but perceived speed is actually what you're dealing with. If you don't do any optimization, then your perceived speed is pretty much the same as your actual speed, right? Like if, if you don't cheat at all, then they're not going to see it be any faster than it actually is or, you know, actually how long it takes to load in the thing. And then, you know, there, there are heaps of things you can do. You can, you can load in, for example, low resolution versions of an image and then replace them with the high resolution images. I think Facebook used to do this where you, if you were quickly flicking through a gallery, you would flick, 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 and, and you'd start to see these like really compressed, really low quality versions of, of the images that you're looking at. And I think they would load them all in at one time, probably as a single image and then move them around using JavaScript wizardry on the front end. But it meant that you had an idea of what you were looking at before the entire content came down. And the entire content might have been a few hundred K, which sitting here in my internet, you know, fiber optic connection in San Francisco, it's very, very fast, but it's not, it's not always, you know, it's not always you are in another country or on a bad connection. And, or just, just even you go through a tunnel on a train. You want to be able to like flick through and have an idea of what you're looking at so that you get the, you know, the contextual information about something long before that second load comes in. In an ideal world, everything is super fast and instant and ubiquitous high speed access everywhere. But if you build with the concept of slow or latent connections, if you build with perceived speed in mind, it kind of, it kind of raises all the boats, right? It, you kind of get the advantage for everybody. So even a high speed connection, if they're switching off a wifi connection, if they're coming off and walk away from their house, is something happens to me. As I walk away from my house, my Wi-Fi connection is still connected, but the data is not going back and forth. You know, <laughs> it's just kind of stopped, and the phone is like, I don't know what's happening here. You're not actually connected to the internet. It takes a few seconds for that cellular connection to kick in. So while it's doing that, that request can be sitting there in the background. If you if you build it correctly, you can wait for that connection to die and try it again, or give the user a notification saying, Hey, this one particular thing you were doing has stopped. It's not working. If you're submitting a form on a website and you submit the form to another page as you're walking away from this thing, the page just doesn't load and you've got to go back to your form. And hopefully the browser's got all your data. You don't know whether the request went away and the data didn't come back or what. You know, you don't have any, con- you don't have any real 
you don't have any options. You can't just submit that again. It's not, you know, the spinner's not still spinning. So I, I think that's sort of what you're talking about. But um, what here, what we're looking, looking at down the bottom is they, they load in the, the cloud up kind of header and you know, logo and buttons and things that are always going to be the same before they load in the user data. Is that sort of what you mean where um, kind of like the frame of, of the page loads in and then the data loads in? Sure. I mean, yeah, I wasn't really going for anything specific, but that's one of the things. It's a super nice trick and it's really cool. Like one of the great parts about this is you can put all of your all of your UI code, all of your um, icons and CSS and HTML and layout stuff. You can put that on a CDN. So you can put your um, you know framework files and your templates and everything up on CloudFront. It gets surfed from you know close to wherever they are. So that's pretty pretty fast. You render that in and then you update another object. We do this in Ember. It's sort of built in. And when to say, say I have a box at the top right of my page that has the my little icon in my name, you can load that part of the template in before you actually know who the user is. If you know you're supposed to be on a page with the, you know, little icon at the top. So you either have a little loading or just a gray, like default icon. And then as soon as the request comes back with, you know, the user's details, as soon as you know a little bit more about them, you just update that part of the page. So the location of it is already set. The, it's obvious that something is about to happen, that there's something still to come. You kind of know where you are and you know where that's going to be when, when it eventually has the data. And it's super optimistic and it's totally cheating, but, but it means that, for one thing, it means that you're pulling in less information from the server. So that slow connection or that slow JSON request that's coming from an AWS or somewhere on the other, other side of the planet just has to carry just the data itself and nothing to do with the presentation. So one thing that I've run across with this a little bit is I'm working on an app and we've got Angular in there. And so it shows the little handlebars, episode dot number, episode dot name. You know, eventually, you know, it gets the data and so then it goes and it inflates all that, puts all the data in the right place. So the page loads fast, but the, it's got a bunch of data in there that's not. Oh, so you're saying that like you actually have those variable names in your, in your templates and the user sees them? Yeah, see, that's super gross. I mean, yeah. you want to you want to kind of avoid that, and you can by like putting a loaded flag on that thing. If the model is loaded, show those bits. Otherwise, just show some text that says loading. That's the wrong. I think that's not the right way to do it. Yeah, I agree. I just I was trying to figure out a better way. We do. I've done it on on the actual object. So I think the object is a promise in Ember, and you can check whether that promise has been resolved. So you put a conditional around that part of your HTML on your template and you say, if user not loaded, I think it is, show the user information. But if not, you show the placeholder stuff. You can have it on the actual object itself where it has a default value that gets updated when it gets pulled in from the server. But, you know, it's sort of a template thing and you want that to come first. So you don't, you don't want to be showing, uh, <laughs> double handlebars tags all through your HTML. Yeah. Was... That's, that's not ideal. Yeah, I wasn't impressed, but I was trying to figure out, you know. That isn't totally a thing. You have to start kind of building your code in that way, right? You've got to start thinking about thinking about the separate states that each object can be in, whether or not you have the data, what you want to show when it's not there. Otherwise, yeah, you just get you get placeholder bits with like this is where your name will be, or like Laura Mipsum, which is, you know, even worse. So it does take some more work. And I think the idea is to minimize how much more work you have to do to get that functionality, whether it's free or, you know, whether you have to do a whole lot of groundwork to make that stuff happen. The more kind of layout or architecture or structural UI code you could bring in before any content comes in, I think it, it just makes the waiting less painful. It means that you can start to get an idea of where you're going to need to look for the information that you want. So your avatar hasn't come in yet, but you know that's where it's going to be. So when you eventually need it, that's where it'll be. 
If you wait for the whole page to load in and then display it all at once, you're just sitting there looking at that white screen. And I think it feels like it takes 10 times as long when there's just a blank white screen with no loading spinner or anything. It's just like, this is the page. It's just not here yet. Well, that shut everyone up. Who <laughs> <What did laughs> told say? us? What did I say? I don't know. I think, I think this, uh, I think this is important and I think it gets forgotten. I, I mean, I don't want to, don't want to sound too far in here, but by Americans, by North Americans who live close to the servers that they use. And, uh, yeah, we, 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 in, out, out in the second world, <laughs> the bottom end of the Pacific, this is, it's just something that we deal with on a day to day basis. I don't know. I mean, living here in, in SF, each page just loads in fast and everyone's on fiber and LTE is on your phone and like the world is a good place to be. Well, I, I mean, Whenever I'm using my phone, it seems like it sucks because the connection can drop between a request, right? So I can get like half the page downloaded and then all of a sudden the connection decides, blip, it's not there. Mm. And then I have to hit refresh and then it right. makes all 30 calls again. So I understand that that's a real pain. It's actually interesting. That's something that the Firefox OS guys seemed pretty adamant about when they uh, oh, really? spoke at, at Open West is they were talking about how Firefox OS is not for American developers. Like they want American developers to get into it because there's good developers here, but they're like, this is not for America. This OS <laughs> is for, uh, yeah. for people that have different needs. And they were saying how, you know, if you're going to develop for Firefox OS, you have to consider their bandwidth constraints and, mm. um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that's something that it seems the traditional Rails type of framework doesn't handle very well because it's always like every single individual thing is its own resource so you make like a bajillion requests and <laughs> it, it seems like some apis are moving towards this idea of when you make your git request it pulls down all the data you're going to need yeah. for your session yes yeah, then when you do your updates it updates atomically you know this particular subset of your data but you do that git and it's like boom here's everything yeah, yeah, sideloading. You can, you can load in other resources that are related to what you are pulling in as separate records that aren't, you know, child records of what you're pulling in, but as like related, uh, related objects that you'll need. And it's true. Yeah. You don't want to saturate the connection with like <laughs> 16 requests running at the same time because then you'll start to hang the browser and nothing is more blocking than a hanged browser. You can't even change tabs or like anything if you start to just overload the browser. So you can't do that either. When we talked to uh, Steve Klabnik about APIs, it really did come across that, you know, do what makes sense. And, uh, you know, so if you have a request that needs to do a specific set of things or a specific thing, then, you know, make an API endpoint for it. And, you know, and so if you want to sideload all of that data or you want to make your system break it up into separate requests, mm. you know, just make those decisions based on what makes the most sense to get those people there. And then I really like where this conversation has gone. I mean, in the sense that, you know, yeah, the crappiest connection that I have to the Internet is on my phone. So, you know, push some data through the phone. Right. Uh, I was just doing some uh, work over at my old house because we're, we're about to sell it. Our renters moved out. And, yeah, I didn't realize I lived in a dead zone over there. <laughs> but, cause, and it's, it's 3G, and it really sucked to be over there. Yeah. But, uh you know, and so, yeah, go find a place where you don't have your LTE connection and give it a shot. It's hard for people who live with, you know, live with good connections to really, like, emotionally understand what it means to have that little blue dot. Because we don't have LTE. We didn't have it in, in, in England, in the city that I was living. previously lived in England. 
and it doesn't exist in New Zealand, and a lot of it is rural, and you just get that blue dot, and you're like, well, I can't use this thing anymore. But you're totally right in that, in that mobile is, is just where this stuff happens, is where asynchronicity really came to the forefront. And, and for me, iOS has been so incredibly good at handling asynchronicity and handling, um, you know, variable connections, right? Variably latent and untrustworthy connections to the internet. So if you think about like pull to refresh, pull to refresh is a good example where if I'm in my little Twitter app and I pull to refresh the whole page, you know, it doesn't kill the app while it's pulling in stuff. It doesn't do a big thing over the top of the page. It doesn't load in all those tweets again. It just gets more stuff and puts it at the top, like a big queue, which is what I want. If I'm, if I still want to read these tweets and load in some more at the same time, and that might take, you know, two seconds or a second or <laughs> 20 seconds or whatever, then, um, you know, it's, it's, it just sits there in the background. And that's, that's what you want. This phone is incredibly smart and powerful and it has a good connection to the internet. And yet something can slow it down. And so that the idea is to take that something that can slow it down and run it in basically in a different thread, like in the background, just not even there that you can't see and you're not aware of until it puts things to the front. And um, you didn't really used to be able to do that so well when everything was single core CPUs on the phone. So that was pretty bad. But uh, these days you don't really have an excuse. And all Objective-C, you know, all of the iOS apps that I've used sort of um, kind of prioritize asynchronicity. They prioritize having the application on the phone and then sending the data in from the web, which is, which is the way it should be. Um, I've used a few web apps masquerading as native apps that they have these days, and it's just not the same. Your content and your presentation all come down together, and they're supposed to be cached, sometimes they do. You know, it's, uh, it's tricky. I think it's smart to get all of the layout-related code and data and size, push it to the client and have it there, and then just mess with JSON, just push JSON back and forth. You can even then tell the client when there's an update to the files that you need updated. And I've, I've seen some apps that could update some of their JavaScript on the fly, I think. There was, uh, I can't remember what it was called. It was like named after a dinosaur or something, but you could update the files that they were using as they were using them using like a diff for your JavaScript. And it kind of blew my mind a little bit, but, um, you know, I really liked it. I like the executable part of the app being, being local. And you just don't get that when it's when it's synchronous. When every every separate page is a separate resource, and you've got to go away to to Virginia to go and get it. Yeah, of course, making those requests for the JSON doesn't that have the same problem as requesting the HTML? Yeah, but that's just data. The JSON is just data. It's not presentational at all. So you can just wait for that to come in and, and still have your original JSON there. But if you're if you're saying, okay, give me all of the new content for this page, suddenly the page that you have is stale. So you might as well either, you know, gray it out or something like that. You, you can't touch this data anymore because some of it may be wrong. You know, you really, you really make this a lot more visceral when you describe it the way that you did. Like, I'd like to show you this page, but I've got to go to Virginia in order to do that. <laughs> yeah, we forget, right? We forget. Oh, we just forget go that do it's going on so the far airport, away. Wi-Fi. Everybody always wanted to disappear this in the same way that JavaScript kind of disappears from memory. Where you're just like, okay, well, you're in this magical environment where everything is fast and the speed of light doesn't matter. And, you know, it doesn't really matter that you're inside a Faraday cage and your internet's not working. But the real world doesn't work like that. And we kind of need to accept it and, and work around it in a way. And in, in actual fact, the working around it makes the application that you build so much more robust and so much more physically nice to use. Because when these issues hit, the, the, the best part is they're non-deterministic. It may not even be your fault that your internet just suddenly went slow. Someone turns on the microwave and it kills your Wi-Fi connection. Suddenly stuff's not loading and, and it's frustrating. You don't want to be sitting there like not being able to scroll what it is that you were already looking at. 
infinite scrolling is, is a good example, both a good example and a bad example of asynchronous interaction. It's a good example because you never get to the bottom of the page because stuff just loads in in the background. Usually it's fast enough. You get about halfway down the page and they just load a little bit more content that you eventually get to. Bad, uh, side rant. Side rant. I don't know what page you're on. Yeah. Here Why do people put footers on Everscroll pages? <laughs> <laughs> I want to get down to the contact us, but I can't get there. Yeah. There's a lot of like not thinking it through that goes on with that stuff, right? It's, it's a, you know, you can't go cold there. It's a, um, not a thought terminating cliche, but it's like, a, it's like a solution that breaks everything. Oh, we'll just put infinite scrolling on it. You have to use common sense for this stuff, right? This, this doesn't, this doesn't do itself. Ember is not a, well, Angular is not a, you know, fix everything solution that you can just throw in your site and it works. You can't do infinite scrolling with a footer. It's dumb. It's not, it's not perfect. So what you're calling for is a JavaScript framework that prevents you from doing infinite scrolling with a footer that's sticky, right? Uh, <laughs> what we need. Is that, I'm call, I'm going to pull request in, like this is a feature on an existing one? No, 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 no. you got to make no, your own framework. When you, guys, when you guys, 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 if, if Angular isn't solving all your problems, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you totally, if you have a footer and that scrolling thing, yeah, you are doing it wrong. There's always like a middle ground where this works. My favorite example for any of this pagination, infinite scrolling stuff is Amazon. And they know the latency costs more than anybody because it, it literally costs them money, right? They don't make money if you're waiting around and people leave. So what I've noticed in doing is you still have paginated pages, one, two, three. But then when you get to that second page, it has three or four items in it and it loads the rest. So rather than making a page to request away from the server, of course, you can get around this all by having all of your pages just in memory and preloading page 11 when you're on page 7. But for them, that was probably probably overkill and nobody goes past page two or whatever. So what they do is they just they load in enough items to have page one and half of page two. So you get to page two and the time it takes to load in the rest of page two, probably the first half of page three, is enough time for you to sit there and look at the first four items on page two and decide whether they're for you. So infinite scrolling aside, you know, you can have a button at the bottom that says get more, get more tweets or whatever, get more content that is, has already been loaded. That's loaded in the background. The, the data's there, ready to go. You hit that button and it just pops down in, instantly without a loading screen. Amen. Which Amen. is perfect, which is the right way to... The right, Instagram did this with their JavaScript SDK. They had a one-click login button. And what I, what I mean by one-click was that you clicked the button and you were logged in. There wasn't a loading. You didn't go to a pop-up page. You just were logged in. And the way they did that was the iframe hack. They load up an iframe with your session data in it and they change the URL in the iframe, detect that from the parent frame, and then you know, decode that to get your, your login information and then know who you are. So you click this login button, it just fires the callback instantly because it has all of your data and your avatar and stuff. And you just, you logged in as soon as your mouse is like unclicked, you know, on mouse up. It's nuts. It was the coolest, most lovely interaction I've ever seen. And it just, it just doesn't happen often enough. I think they disabled it because it was a huge security flaw or something. But uh, for the brief shining period when that worked, we had one click insta login. And it just, it felt like the future, you know, you felt like that's how it should work. It was never going to be that fast if you didn't build it in another way. You would never get to instant without doing it, you know, in advance. Like you could never optimize away that connection costs. Even with Google Fiber, even with two computers hardwired together, there's still going to be some time after you click before you get the response you need. So in order to get that time from 0.1 second down to zero second, or 0.1 dot dot dot, you know, 50 seconds, down to zero, always zero, you have to do it in advance. How long you do it in advance is another question, right? You know, whether it's going to take five seconds to do, so you need to do it five seconds in advance, or whether it's pretty quick, but 
You can't get to asynchronous by speeding up synchronous. I don't think it works. Dead silence. This is a synchronous. Oh, that's a great quote. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. That's the money quote, I think. This is what we did. This is what we did with Forge. We basically said we're gonna make the fastest hosting system in the world, but we can't you can't do it. You can't do it by just serving pages faster. You can't take the traditional approach and optimize it to be next generation. It has to be there's some quote somewhere that says if it's not an order of magnitude better, it might as well be worse. Like it's the same. I'm not gonna use it if it's not an order of magnitude better. The only way you make it ten, hundred, a thousand times faster is doing it a completely different way. Otherwise, you're talking about quantum computing or, you know, God knows what to get those bits across faster. But it's 2015 or whatever it is. These computers are fast enough and, you know, we're smart enough to be able to do this stuff in the background. All we need to do is make it easy for us to build these things so that they are asynchronous. And that's why these frameworks are so great, because I just don't have to think about it. It's engineered into the way I build an Ember app. You know, it's engineered into, into the whole thing. And, and I, I don't have to think about it. It makes it easier to do it asynchronously than Synchronously, and then it'll happen. This is really cool. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to this again, and just really wrap my head around it. I think it's important, and I think it will shape the way that we do a lot of our development for the next little while. It may not even be obvious. Like best case scenarios, we don't even notice that this stuff is happening, and the end user just doesn't even care about how you know how it's actually working. We just we we want it to be exactly the same as it is now, but infinitely faster. And the way that we do that is changing everything. But the end result is not, this should not be obvious. The end users don't even notice when your stuff is really fast. We did this on the, on the Hammer for Mac site, hammerformac.com, and it is fast. All the pages loaded fast. You can go through the docs and click all the links, like with no, with no lag time. And we just, just our least commented upon feature. It's super disappointing. <laughs> it's just like not something that people notice. Every once in a while, someone's like, what the hell is happening? Why is it so fast? But in actual fact, they expect it to be this fast. Anything short of instant is slow, I think is how, is how we should think about this stuff. Anything short of like it's, it's already there is why, why am I waiting? I'm so much more so important than this computer. I, I want to take a moment to springboard off of that one comment. So sometimes I feel like instant is too fast. Like sometimes having a 200 millisecond de- delay just makes me feel better as a person, you know? Fine, fine, absolutely, that's fine, but fake it. Fake it so that that 200 milliseconds is a 200 somewhere in your code. So that you right. can change it. So that but, the second time it's faster or something like that. AJ's but, worried about having too much money too. No, no, no. But do you guys know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Where like the brain wants a little bit of time. It wants a little bit of time between the action and the reaction. Because okay, honestly, sure. if, no, if I, you I get something shorter than a tenth of a second, you can't tell which happened first, right? Like if you're, you ever had that problem where you're watching TV and the audio and the video are out of sync by less than a tenth of a second. And it's even worse than it being out of sync regularly because you can't tell which is happening first. Because it takes more than a tenth of a second to process cause and effect. Okay. My argument for that one is usually um, the Facebook thing. Facebook did a study and ever since I read this, I've been trying to find a link to it and I haven't been able to, but they found that, and I'll go against exactly what I said earlier, is that the actual time that something takes and the latency of doing something is not as important as the consistency of it always taking the same amount of time. When you click on something, you want it always to take the same amount of time because it feels familiar. When you click on messages in Facebook, you want it to take 1.3 seconds. If the second time you come back and it takes 0.1 of a second, you're like, this is different. Something has changed. And this is what I don't like about TurboLinks. TurboLinks, that first load of a new URL is always slow. It has to go and fetch the server. The second time around, it caches it and then updates in the record or whatever it does. But you, you want it to be the same each time you do it. And you really want to curate that experience and have it be the speed that you want it to be. 
if something takes half a second, but it takes half a second consistently and you know what to expect, then it's not too long, half a second's not so bad. It's okay because you're like, oh, yeah, I remember, I remember this takes half a second. I understand this interface emotionally. I understand that this, this doing something. But if the second time it's fast, you're like, I, oh, what is, you know, what's, what's happening? So either it's got to be fast and always fast or it should be slow and, and consistently slow. And in that case, if something can be slow, what you, sh- what you should be doing is setting a minimum timeout on whatever it is. So you, you're talking about that 200 milliseconds. It's a good example. If you take that 200 milliseconds and say that the server response can be between three and 80 milliseconds, you know, to, to respond with this data that it needs, you can say, okay, well, how about we have that minimum timeout be 60 milliseconds for this thing? So the slowest it's ever going to be is that 80 or 90 or whatever it is, the slowest example. And then when it's cached, the three millisecond thing, it's going to drop it down to 60, maybe 50. So every time it still takes a little bit of time. But the first one is just slightly, slightly slower. And every, every one after that is reasonably quick, like not too bad. So by making this asynchronous and by preloading things and doing it really smartly, you can engineer artificial delays in your application and in your code that work with the interface. And, and, they're, and they're direct and you know how long they're going to take. They're not as variable. But by doing it asynchronously, you kind of, you just you get more control of it. That 80 milliseconds is not dependent on, <laughs> on, you know, what cellular connection you're on, something like that. It's, um, it's sort of more, more curated, maybe more, uh, you've got more control. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can fake this. makes stuff. a lot of sense. You can fake delays and I'm all for it. You can lie, cheat, and steal to your users and you should. If it makes it a better, a better interface and a more consistent flow and it makes the computer really feel like you've, you know, you've done something really nice with it, then, then by all means, you slow stuff down, you know, make stuff take a while, use transforms and, and transitions and all these things to move stuff around so that things are logically visible to your users. But, you know, don't let the don't let the, the cellular connection be the uh, <laughs> the reason or the you know the thing that you're relying on to give you these delays. That's nuts. That's nuts. You know, you, you're putting your whole application and the user interface and what you're building in the hands of a telco. And I can't think who <laughs> I can't think who would be worse <laughs> than a telco. So I read Ilya Grigorik's book, High Performance Browser Networking, a while ago. And the main takeaway was just how fantastically complex cellular networking is and how anything ever works all the time is a total mystery to me. <laughs> so I agree. It, it seems like it's so variable that you need to have some certainty in your control, not in someone else's. All right. Well, we, we've been talking for about an hour or so. We should probably get to the picks. But before we do, I want to ask, are there any other critical bits or tricks or tips that you like that you want to give us before we do that? Or anything else that you want me to quote on uh, the Horse AJ Twitter account? Oh, is this me? Is this you asking me? I did see I that. I have one more question. We mm. talked a little bit about some examples, but are there any other examples of sites or apps that do this really well, that have really great asynchronous UIs? You put me on the spot here. I'm going to have to... Gonna it's have okay. To <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think of some off the top of my head. And not, I mean, not really. I mean, anything, anything that's built on iOS is an interesting example of how asynchronicity is more built you mean into that. Platform. A native app. Yeah, a native app, a native app. Native apps have the, kind of have the understanding of built in, whereas the web, rather than web apps, the websites have no concept of, you know, of anything to do with, you might actually want more pages than just the single page. Websites without JavaScript just don't have it. And yet, but, but on, on iOS, it's built with that in mind. And I think built with that, built with asynchronicity in mind is what we need to do. Like we need to build with this concept just as such a basic fundamental understanding of how the world works and how, you know, the wire works. 
trying to think of things that are asynchronous. I mean, I, I work here at Dropbox, and I think Dropbox is an interesting example. You save a file, and it goes up in the background, right? You, you don't want to have to wait for that file to be saved or anything. You don't want to upload it to a website. You want it just to happen in the background. You want a little progress bar. Anything with a, anything with a progress bar, I really like. Because it, it says there's something happening. We're still updating. You're going, to be, you're going to be aware of it if there's an error and something's moving. I don't have any off the top of my head that, that do this asynchronicity stuff really well. But um, just kind of every, every major site is starting to do this a little bit better. And I like it. And it's, it is starting to happen really well. AJ, do you want to start us with the picks? Yeah, I do. Okay, so I haven't been as diligent in paying attention to awesomeness lately. But there is something I don't think I've picked before. Bookshelf JS. Have I mentioned that before? No? Okay, great. So Bookshelf JS is an ORM for SQLite, MySQL, PostgreSQL, and MariaSQL. You know, so when you realize that, you know, you're finally over this whole NoSQL crap and you want to get back to what works, you got Bookshelf. Actually, it's a pretty good library. I, I haven't used too many of the other ORMs that have existed for Node over the years, but Bookshelf is a very, the, the documentation's very clear. The maintainer is just absolutely phenomenal about answering any issues that you post in either of the two repositories or Bookshelf is the abstraction layer and then Connects is the, the layer that actually interfaces with the core underlying modules, the PG and SQLite 3 and, and so forth. And it's nice sometimes to have SQL. I know that we'll probably get some very negative comments on this episode from me saying that, but uh, SQL does work sometimes, you know? So, huzzah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jameson, what are your picks? I just have the one pick. It's a free online book about the Web Audio API. I've been getting a lot into it lately, just playing around with it more. And the actual API itself isn't crazy complex, but just the whole background in digital signal processing and physics of how sound works and that stuff, that's a little harder for me to pick up. And this book does a pretty good job of walking you through how to use the Web Audio API, but also explaining some of these underlying concepts so that you can do cooler stuff than copy-paste someone else's code with it. That's my only pick. After AJ's picks, I was hoping you were going to pick NoSQL. <laughs> Just assume I have a standing pick for the opposite of whatever AJ picked. <laughs> Joe, what are your picks? All right, so I've got a few picks here. The first one is a book that I picked up off of an Amazon ebook sale. It's called Off to Be the Wizard, and it reminds me a ton of a book I picked in the past called Ready Player One. It's about a guy who uh, is browsing around on the internet and hacks into some server and finds a text file that describes everything in life and realizes that life is actually just a computer simulation. And because he has right access to the text file, he can now control everything. And he's, so he's like a wizard. And so for some reason, he's running from the law. He teleports himself back to medieval England. And it's kind of like a little bit of uh, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, but done with a real modern day twist where he, he needs to have his, his uh, smartphone on him in order to uh, affect all this magic because that's how he edits the text file. It's I've been reading it for a little while and it's been really quite entertaining. So I'm going to pick that. It's only four bucks in ebook form off Amazon. And then because I picked that and it reminded me so much of uh, Ready Player One, I want to pick again Ready Player One, but this time, not just the book. I'm picking the audiobook version that was read by Will Wheaton, because apparently Will Wheaton is an amazing narrator. He's narrated a few books, and he's supposedly just fantastic. So my second pick is Ready Player One, read by Will Wheaton. 
And then my last pick is a kind of a family party game called Idiom Addict. That's idiom like, you know, the language construct and then addict. Uh, like you're addicted to something. It's called Idiom Addict. And it's a really fun game where there it has a bunch of cards that have idioms on it that are described using synonyms. So, you know, early to bed, early to rise might be described as in first to get up, first to go down. And then the, whoever's reading it, somebody reads it, other people have to try to figure it out in a given time limit. And it's actually really fun. I played it a bunch of time with friends and family. Just had a great time playing that game. So that's my third pick is Idiom Addict. That does sound like fun. Yeah, it's really fun. Awesome. So uh, last week I picked The Miracle Morning, and I've been sticking with it, and it's been terrific. I know I mentioned it and then said I'd report back in, and so far it, it really is making a difference for me every morning. So I'm just going to let you know that it's still awesome. So go check it out. And, yeah, that's all I've really got this week. Elliot, what are your picks? Has anyone picked Swift? Can I pick Swift? I know it's I not think anyone Swift. Has. Can I pick Swift? I pick Swift. That's my number one pick. I like it. I've been using it. It's a lot like JavaScript. It's really nice to write. It's like writing Objective-C without having to do all the Objective-C stuff. You still have to deal with Cocoa, and if you're on the, you know, on the Mac, that's just as dumb as it's ever been, but it means that you, you, like the playgrounds are nice, Xcode 6 is fine. It's cool. I like it. I really like it. I ran into some amazing, like, segmentation fault bugs that, that you only get when you have to archive something. So, you know, you'll have fun with that, but I honestly think that Swift is like JavaScript for iOS and Mac developers. It's so much, it's so similar and it feels so, you know, so similar that uh, I think it's going to be nice to use for a lot of people who've only had experience with JavaScript. Of course, all the Objective-C people are like tearing their hair out that this single language that they can write is now deprecated and they'll never need it again. But, but yeah, give it a try. The playgrounds are quite fun. You can sort of write code and see as it's evaluated. That's my first pick. My second pick uh, would have to be Framer. Does anyone use Framer? You guys use Framer? I do not even know what it is. Framer.js. It's a, it's a JavaScript library that gives you a set of kind of fundamentals and objects for doing prototyping. So kind of like layers and states for animations and, and click events and things. It's uh, There's some new stuff coming out for it that I have heard rumors about that's going to make it pretty amazing if, you, if you're doing any just sort of... UI playing, you know, if you're messing around with interfaces and prototyping stuff out, it's a really nice way to get from zero to a functional, you know, working demo. I like it a lot. So it's Swift and Framer are my two picks. Very nice. Well, thanks for coming, Elliot. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me, everybody. That was great. Yeah, uh, thanks. We'll go ahead and wrap up, and we'll catch everybody next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.